Hello, and welcome to KeeperCast, the Keeper Velocities podcast. I'm Sammy. And I'm Ben. And this is episode 17, brought to you by Bronte's most uncomfortable chair ever invented. Yeah, this week we read chapters 22 through 29 of Everblaze. I mean, the section that we read was pretty short just because of how dense kind of the end of this section is. Yeah, so the main thing that happened in this section was, like you said, towards the end, because um, there was this that section with the trust exercises between Sophie and Fitz, which kind of felt like, I don't know, felt like most of the session. Um, but yeah, that was really all I had to say. But I quite, I quite enjoy the um, trust exercises. I think that they're, although they've gotten a bit boring at this point, I think that it's really cool to just have these kids having to sit down and be like, okay, we need to trust each other. How do we do that? And then having to learn that. And I thought it was like interesting which secrets they chose to share. Yeah. Uh... Yeah. Yeah, they were fun. Um, we got to meet Mr. Snuggles, which was great. <laughs> um... Oh, I love just the slow, just the slow invading of what you can tell Shannon's true passion is into the series of these stuffed animals as they take over the serials. I think she said like her goal was to have every single main character have a stuffed animal by the end of the series, which I think is an admirable goal. I think, well, Tam and Lynn are the only ones missing them right now, I believe. Right. And Lynn has and maybe that, Dex. Lynn, Lynn has a real animal. Lynn has the Murcat princess. The, yeah, the Murcat sparkle fur whatever. She gets brought up like twice in the entire series. Yeah, I guess if we just want to start from the beginning of the section, um, like usual, it starts where um, there's a bit where Sophie's like looking through Jolie's stuff, and she finds out that um, Jolie and Brant were a bad match. Which, again, kind of brings up the whole, you know, like, thing with the Lost Cities. I'm sorry, I can't find, like, words right now. Um, yeah, I don't really have anything to say about that. Which is, like, like, it is a big deal. I feel like we've talked about it a lot before, though. About bad matches and elven prejudices and things like that. Yeah, we've, we've, I think... You also, I mean, I hope this hasn't been discussed before either, but I think that there's this really interesting effect where two of the most prominent bad matches we've seen, which is probably just because these are the matches that relate to Sophie's life, have been within the Ruin family. Like, Jolie probably felt more confident with her bad match because her aunt was very happy with her husband. Oh, right. Yeah, that's a good point. Honestly, I just, I would love to know so much more in general about the Ruin family. Um, like, I just think, uh, oh, Edeline and Juline have such interesting characters that we don't really get to learn anything more about their past. But we also have characters like, um... Oh, yeah, but we also have Grady, who is an incredibly interesting character, but we just don't get to hear a lot about his past, either. I mean, I know, like, the series already covers so much, and there's, like, so many things that it 
deals with um, already just plot-wise, but I do think it would be really interesting to get some of the adults' perspectives or some more of the backstory um, for the adults. Just because, yeah, like, I do think they're interesting characters. I think they're, like, just as interesting as some of the kids, and it would be cool to um, to see them a bit more. Yeah, and I think... I think just because I've been rereading some of the later books too, what I find so interesting is that we see that Grady has this like cruelty in him. And we see it again and again when like Gisela and Vespera describe him as like one of the, I don't know, I can't remember the exact phrasing, but like one of the deadliest elves they've ever met. And that's a lot coming from those two. Yeah. Yeah. It's like him being a mesmer. And then just also like what we've what we've seen from him every once in a while, like especially in, in Everblaze, things that are gonna come up in this book. Yeah, it makes me wonder like what Grady's thoughts are on the whole thing and like Grady is very unique and Grady almost does in a way carry like or just kind of remember me or not remember me, what am I saying? Like he does remind me of Fitz a bit in a way. Just because of, like, the way that his anger manifests as a reaction to grief? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God, that's so good. Yeah, I... Yeah, he and Fitz are really similar. I don't think that these are all related, but, like, part of Grady's whole, like, against Keith thing. I think that's purely in protection of Sophie, but it would be kind of funny if that's also because he saw Fitz like himself. And was like, yeah, you should be able to get the girl. Come on, dude. (laughs) But... I I love Grady, and I would love to see more of him. If you don't love Grady, what are you doing with yourself, is my question. Yeah, so the next section was dealing with Grady. Like, Grady is talking about a bunch of dwarves that disappeared. Um, I don't actually remember where this goes, but I think it's interesting to note for later. Um, because there were some dwarves that went with the never seen if i'm correct right i think yeah there are dwarves on the never seen team and then of course after flashback we're left wondering how long they've kind of been there and how much the dwarves themselves actually know about that yeah i guess that's that's also just something we don't really know much about yet um but i think it's kind of cool how the dwarves have always like sort of been involved with the never seen then there were also some who were part of the black swan right even as early as ever blaze yeah we're seeing these interspecies connections yeah and then we could talk about um again going back to grady and jo- uh, and edeline because apparently i can't talk about anybody else today but edeline's progress with uh going through jolie's old stuff good for her yeah yeah i mm-hmm yeah, I love her. I mean, one, I just love her Who in doesn't? general. And then two is I, yeah, I love how, like, I love her character development. I love the whole sort of subplot, if that's what it'd be called, of, like, you know, going through Jolie's stuff and sort of coming to terms with Jolie's death even, like, 15 years after the fact. I'd Spoilers for Everblaze. But um, it's really, this is a book where we start to see, like, permanent death too so it's really interesting that we've got this storyline of accepting death while both having the storyline of a new death that 
has really big ripples across society. Yeah, but anyways, we love Adeline and her being the world's best mom. Moving on is when um, Sophie has an inflicting session where our favorite counselors, Kenrick and Bronte, are um, there to see her inflict positively, inflict positive emotions. Um, yeah, and this is an interesting scene because here is where we find out Bronte is pretty much allergic to happiness. In the words of Sophie, there are so so there are still so many questions about what happened there. I have no idea what happened. I'm still so confused. And we it never gets revisited. It's never brought up again. Yeah, like, it's like, it seems like it should be important, right? It seems like it includes something significant about the nature of inflicting or, like, what, or even, like, Bronte's nature. But I'm just very confused what it implies or, like, how it's even possible that he's that he just can't process happiness. There must be some points in his life where he's happy, so how does he... Cause, well, because we do see him in scenes where he sees right. happy. So, like, how is that different from Sophie making him happy? Yeah, it's so... It's also so interesting because we hear all the time about how, like, ancient minds are different and how about the ancients are so fancy. But, like, our exposure to that is only ever really through Bront and then occasionally Fallon later on. But even then, like, Fallon's a bit wacky, but Bront is very in place among the other characters. Yeah, it's it's interesting what you said about ancient minds being different cuz like yeah, I'm so I'm still very I'm still pretty confused about what exactly happened to Bronte at that point. He like, just collapsed. Was it actually <laughs> Yeah, but like was it actually the memory, like the hap- like the happy emotion from Sophie that made him collapse or was it, I don't know, did he realize something in himself? Or, like, I just, I want I want to know exactly what happened in that point because that's never been answered, and I think it seems important. It does, but, like, what, what you mentioned I just made me think of is, like, we saw that part of the reason has, like, similarly to how Alden was able to, like, I don't know, polish his mind back up, piece it back together after it was broken with a little bit of help from Sophie. Like, is this just Bront's brain reacting to having survived a bunch of grief and having lived through these forgotten secrets? And this is his reaction, and this is the way that his brain has changed to process it? Oh, that's... Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, because he did, like... Because there's all this talk about the, the caches and how they hide memories because like the because the counselors couldn't deal with the memory if they actually had to hold it but Bronte did live through those all of those memories in the caches so like he must somehow be able to to deal with it and maybe that's sort of related to the reason why he can't deal with happiness yeah I don't I don't know because like and I hear you. People listening, I hear you. I know that you're going to say, but he doesn't have those memories anymore. His brain would probably still be that way after living through those memories. Like, taking away their memories would not reset your brain. But then also, 
there's also the question of like does Bront have a deep connection to Shadowflux, maybe? Like, was there some sort of incident there? Oh, yeah, that's another good theory. Yeah, because Shadowflux, um, that was related to, to Prentice, right? And how, like, related to how they couldn't really bring him back? Mm-hmm, that's what made me think of it. That, yeah, and also just, like, the way it's described of Sophie going in Bronze Mine and it being a very dark place is just reminiscent of Keefe in flashback when Sophie's talking about how the darkness went through his entire brain and then light came and sealed it, which just is a connection that could have nothing to do with it, but is neat to think about. Yeah, that is really cool to think about. So, like, would the theory be that Bronte has Shadowflux in his mind? I think... I think that the... Yeah, I think that would be part of it, but I also think that, like, if Stellar Loon is a forgotten secret that Orly and Sophie are retrieving, it would make sense that Megsayan being Shadow Flux solid, it would make sense that maybe Bront was exposed to it, or to Stellar Loon, and went through a similar process to Keith. Oh, yeah. Oh, that gave me a another idea. Um, so, as far as we know... Bronte and Sophie are the only inflictors, right? Yeah. What if... What if the Stellar Loon and... Sorry if I'm getting my facts mixed up, but... um, But what if it, that has something to do with um, Keefe's new ability? I think because... Well, we're just bouncing off of each other real well right now. Because... I believe, I can't remember where in flashback it says this, but Jill Zellis says that Keefe's ability that will be given to him by the Stellar Loon and by this whole procedure is going to be very, very unique. And whether or not Bront was the first registered inflictor, like the first inflictor ever among the elves, or if there was other inflictors, but it was like a one in 10 million chances of happening, then either Stellar Loon maybe can create new abilities, or maybe it I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that, but just, like, the very, very unique abilities part of Giselle's description of it is interesting. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting, because I have wondered, like, how the special abilities have sort of, like, separated, end up separating themselves, so they manifest just as, like, one specific thing, so I think it would be cool if, like, Stellar Loon maybe does something to your genes or I, I I don't know exactly how it all works but it does something to create those new abilities and like add them to the you know the possibilities of abilities out there yeah but I also think it's very interesting because we have seen that Keith one enhanced exhibits abilities similar to an inflictor and we've seen that Sophie when using her telepathy does things similar to an empath. So it seems like there could be, like, there's a Venn diagram of abilities, and, or not even a Venn diagram, but all those abilities seem very interconnected. Mm-hmm, yeah, and it's like, it, it is kind of like a Venn diagram, I think, because, like, yeah, like, when Keith, when Keith's empathy can kind of turn into inflicting it, that's like, he's sort of in the, he sort of finds like the that in between section between telepathy and um, between yeah. abilities, yeah, between 
Well, it seems like, yeah, it's like telepathy and empathy inflicting really all those like mental skills. It seems like they are all very interconnected. But then that brings in the interesting question, because it almost seems like inflicting is from the heart, telepathy is from the mind, and then empathy can be through either medium, but the heart is accessible when you're enhanced or only to very, very strong um, empaths. There was something also in the first book, I think, about, like, core energy um, and how that's, like, only accessible to people who've studied for a really long time. Oh, yeah. And I believe, yeah, I believe core energy comes from the head, but, like, the other energy comes from the heart. So there's all these, like, sort of pairs and dualities that... I think when you start talking about the energies, though, like, things get a bit weird because when you talk about splotching is that's levitation right or is that telekinesis i can't remember it's i think levitation is like a type of telekinesis yeah they're interconnected but in oh i think it was flashback like a skill that you would do primarily with like your brain energy telekinesis sophie is aided by using i hate this word foot energy so it seems like they all have connections and are all drawn together, but the elves don't like mixing, so it's often weaker. I feel like Unlocked might be neat just because we're not tied down to the same story principles that we are for the main series, so we could get a lot more, like, world exposition. Like, I'd love for Sophie to just go to class once. <laughs> yeah, actually. She has not been to school regularly since, what, book three? Yeah? Yeah, about that? Alright. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's time for Sophie to get an education. Please, ma'am, just... It's there for a reason. It's publicly funded. Make use of it. Or, like, at the end of the series, they'll be like, Yes, you saved the world. However, we cannot allow you to graduate because you have never been to school. Yeah, it's like, sorry, you still have to go back and complete grade one. Our bad, <laughs> but also your bad. You have to pass alchemy. Sorry. I also... This was just a fun question that I was thinking about last night. In the main squad, who do you think would teach which classes at um, Foxfire? Oh. Oh, that's a good question. I have some of my own stuff, but I can wait for you to go. Hmm, I think I think either Sophie or Fitz would be good at teaching telepathy, just because telepaths. Um... Hmm. As for other things, I feel like Lynn would be good at history. Um, I don't know exactly why, but I just feel like Lynn and history would vibe. Um, oh, well, I bet Dex could teach alchemy. Yeah, that was one of the ones that I had in my brain. That was one of the yeah. obvious ones. <laughs> <laughs> right, because of, like, slurps and burps and stuff. Um, okay, I've for, as for Keith, I was trying to think of something that he would teach. I just honestly can't see him being a teacher. <laughs> really? So, yeah, I don't I know. Think, I think my my ideas for Keith was either history, which of course wouldn't be a traditional history class because it's Keith teaching it. But like, I feel like that's something that he could be a very energetic and like passionate teacher and do like more kinesthetic learning with. Like, a lot of field trips, like, going out there and, like, explaining. And I think he would probably teach 
that quite well. Either that or like the gym class equivalents that they have. Because once again, I think that Keith is just a very kinesthetic learner type person and just a very active and doing person. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I could actually see him teaching teaching the gym class or like something similar, like some sort of skills class. Yeah. And then my other ideas I had was that I wanted Sophie to teach the universe just because she has this oh, memory yeah. of stars and just because I think it it matches her and she does all the stuff with yeah, the light, with the cancel. Her. And then the only other one I had was Bianna with elementalism. And my reasons for that aren't as strong, but it was mostly that because like elementalism is considered mostly useless and that's your nobility and from what we can tell like Bianna really prides herself on being nobility it's something that she enjoys being and also it's got like that more elemental vibe to it which kind of matches of Bianna's ability as a vanisher more than it does some of the other like more mental abilities right yeah yeah those all make a lot of sense yeah I don't know it just came to me last night and I was like oh how about I think about this for half an hour oh this is sort of connected to what we were talking about, about, like, mental abilities, I guess, but, um, you know, after a little bit, uh, in this section, Sophie does end up at the healing center again, because, naturally, um, and, uh, Leto, Master Leto is, he's, he arrives there for some reason, don't remember exactly what the reason is, but he, he says this line that's, I know rather more about the mind than you might expect, and it's like, hmm, yeah, I wonder why. Also, like, wouldn't people expect him to know a lot about the mind already? Like, he's a telepath, and he's the beacon of the Silver Tower. True. It's not like people look at him and say, ah, that's an uneducated man right there. <laughs> right, yeah, like... And just while we're going through things in this section, I thought might as well bring up um, when Stina... Wait, is this the right section? Yeah, it is. It's when Cena brings up like the whole, oh, you're healing, you're healing the dude, you're healing the Fintan. And then Dame Molina steps in and is like, come with me, we're going to my office. Right, yeah. Yeah, that was interesting. Because um, like, I think this book really tries to like show how Dame Molina seems to be on Sophie's side. Like there's a lot of points where... Alina's kind of, like, coming to Sophie's rescue or, like, doing things that are generally good for her and her friends. So it's kind of, like, all building up to what we will talk about in a couple weeks. Yeah. And I think that this scene, like, as you mentioned, in a couple weeks, like, this will be more prominent. But I also think that this scene is really good foreshadowing for that just because of how much of a position of defense she's coming in for the council. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because she's very, like... She's very pro-council here, just, talk, like, defending their decision about Fenton. Yeah. Which I just found interesting, knowing the events that happen next. And the thing is, like, with this section, like, there are... I do think there are, like, um, like valid complaints about Sophie healing Fenton and, like, whether or not she should actually do it is a valid question. Um, and as, you know, as we see, there's, like, a lot of potential for it to go wrong, uh, so it's kind of, it's, we're sort of seeing this, like, tension between what the council wants versus what a lot of the elves actually the want. people. Mm-hmm. Gosh. Like, I, I think that 
I, I always wonder why, why Fenton, like, from, it makes a lot of sense from, like, a story writing standpoint of, like, oh, we need Kenrick to die and we need Fenton to re-escape. But I still don't really see the logic behind the council coming in and saying, oh, this is the dude that we're gonna free. Like, I can't remember the exact explanation for it, but it's just not very strong. Yeah, it it doesn't make a lot of logical sense to me just because, like, from the first book, they already had evidence that Fenton had committed crimes. So it's not like he was, like, Prentice or someone who was more or less innocent, but then got his mind broken, so it should be reversed. I honestly feel like it might have more to do with the fact that, like, Bronte and a lot of the the ancients or some of the older elves on the council, like, you know, knew him personally and felt kind of guilty about about breaking his mind just because they had been friends in the past. See, but that raises the question, because, once again, we know only about a very specific number of counselors. We know we know Bront well, we know Orly well, we know Tarek somewhat well, and that's it. We know nothing about the other people, so we don't know how many agents there are. Right. Yeah, that's that's true. So yeah, I feel like a lot of you know what most of the council is thinking is just not available to us because we don't know who any of these other people are like what their personalities really are are like like even emery we don't we don't know a lot about that guy right like i mean he's the thing is emery is is an interesting case because he's in a lot of scenes and like he says a lot of things he's pretty much their spokesperson um but we know very little about what he actually thinks personally because he's just saying what the council has agreed upon. Yeah, I think that speaks a lot to what we know about him as a character. But also, he's never had a one-on-one conversation with Sophie. Everyone else has had this opportunity to speak to Sophie as more than just a member of the council. But also a person who is a member of the council. Where Emery has not really been given that opportunity. Yeah, I don't know. I would love to learn... Once again, this is just me begging Shannon for exposition. Shannon. (laughs) Please. You cannot present me with these 12 leaders of pretty much the entire world. And then just say, yeah, here are three of them. You get to know these three. Have fun. I mean, like, I kind of get the reasoning behind it. Like, there's 12 of them. It would take many, many pages to get to know all of them, but still, I do want to get to know all of them because I think they're interesting. And I also, like, this also comes to talk of, like, the idea of, like, there are a lot of characters in Keeper of the Lost City. Sometimes it feels like too many because they're not altogether balanced well all the time. Like, we see different members of the main cast being left out and forgotten at different times. Like, we see Tinker, who's more of a MacGuffin for the story than an actual character. So, yeah. It was Shannon giving an excuse when she said that all the people were hating on the fact that Dex wasn't around anymore. She's like, oh, we don't get to see Dex anymore? Um, okay, let me just look through my notes. Yeah, he gets to hang out with someone cool now. And that's that problem solved. Yeah, I do think there's, like, 
there is kind of this imbalance between like there are so many main characters already I mean like in you know in the main portraits and the art there's eight of them which is a lot and then just new characters keep getting added yeah yeah <laughs> and I mean we're only seeing more mm-hmm because we see Morella added back in, and I love Morella with my whole heart, and I'm glad she was brought back, but it's adding another person into that main cast. And we see the same thing happening to Maruka, where I also love Maruka. Like, it's great. Like, yes, I love her. However, you're not balancing what you already have. Right, and like with Stina as well, especially in Legacy. And I feel like with the addition of those, you know, other characters then suddenly we're forgetting about Gen Z, who wasn't in Legacy at all. So it's like, it's this weird kind of balancing act um, where I feel like sometimes it'd be better off if we just stuck with the characters we already know and then, but focused on all of them. I understand where Shannon's coming from because it's so enjoyable having all these characters in there. It's so fun getting to play with these different abilities and these different dynamics. And, but it also... Introducing these people, what we've seen happening is that it doesn't it doesn't evenly divide time between everybody. It takes what little time of the non-romantic interest part of that main group. So it takes time from Bianna, Dex, Tam, and Lynn, and then it splits that up while still keeping this reserve of time for the main love interests. Like, I think, not to get too strongly into ships, but like, Sokif is, of course, like, one of the most popular ships in the fandom, and I think that it's, like, it's a very, like, it's obviously a ship that's well-presented in canon. There are good reasons for them getting together. However, at this point, I'm just, I don't feel like we need more time with Keith. I, I half agree with that and half don't. I feel like... I agree that we already get quite a bit of time with Keith and quite a lot of like, you know, of so Keith time and time for that to develop um, within like the main books. I do also think though that Keith is a really interesting character and like I could see the reasons for wanting him to get more page time and like more of like, like a POV and unlocked and stuff like that. Um, simply because it looks like he is actually going to be pretty plot, pretty important to the plot. And like, if that's what's planned, then like, you should just kind of, you should just lean into Keith's role with that as much as possible. Yeah. And I think, I think there's, of course, like if Keith's a main character, and I think if Keith's point of view was becoming more and more integrated in the series, like, that's cool. That's great. My problem is just that like, so much of the time is spent specifically with Keith, and I just worry about what would happen should Sophie and Keith actually, like, actually get together, like, in the series. Like, what would happen then? How would that influence how much time we're spending with other characters? Right, yeah. It's like, it's, you know, it started off as, as kind of an ensemble cast kind of book, but now it's turning into... Or they're, or Sophie and Keith are just getting more time in comparison to others. Yeah. And I don't, like, once again, like, I don't mind that if that's the direction of the book is going. I just wish that it would firmly decide and settle into that role. 
Like, either either you're a book that's right now following this romantic relationship with side characters in the background, or you're a book with an ensemble cast, one of whom is the love interest. And to, and to the point that I was making before about worrying, like, about how if Keith and Sophie actually started dating, how that would influence the series, I think it could go in either way. Like, them dating could cause them to spend less time together, or it could cause them to spend all their time together. Right, because either, like the love triangle is resolved and everything becomes established so it just kind of the romance goes more to the background or when things are established the romance suddenly comes to the forefront because it's like there all the time personally just based on how the series will go i don't know if like Keith and sophie will truly be resolved until the very end of the series like they just kind of have that feeling of like classic percy jackson and annabeth chase where like yeah, they've been half dating for, like, the entire series at this point, or the last few books, but they're not canon until the very end of that fifth. And, like, I don't, I don't actually mind that trope. I kind of, I kind of like that trope. Um, but, yeah, that does seem like the direction that it's probably gonna go in. Yeah, and I like that trope, too. Like, it works really well in Percy Jackson, but you have a much smaller cast of characters there, right? So... I think it will depend. It's possible that it'll get a whole lot better, this book, with Fitz and Sophie being more about rebuilding their friendship than about being romantic with each other. Yeah, that is true. I think it's kind of nice that, I mean, so Fitz is kind of effectively over at this point, so it it, it will be nice to, like, be able to focus on their friendship more. Yeah, and I, like, I would love for them to be cognates again. And I would love to say that you can have, and I think this is a really important thing to talk about, especially with books targeted at middle schoolers. It's like, you can have close friends with people of the opposite gender without it needing to be romantic. Right, yeah. Yeah, I think, especially in middle grade, you're right, friendships are just very, like, you're just a really important aspect to to make sure that they're always there in, in the series. You can be friends without dating. It's okay, Sophie. Yeah, and then sort of just wrapping up, like, the section we read, um, it ends with the trust exercises, which we talked about a little at the beginning. Um, well, it came full circle. We talked about cognates right then. Started with trust circles. Wow. Yeah, pretty much. So, yeah, this is kind of, like, foreshadowing um, to Sophie and Fitz becoming cognates, just them sort of learning to trust each other. I mean, which is... Partly why it happens later in the series, because Tyrion was there for all of that. Right, yeah. And, um, yeah, I just, I, I did really like the, the trust exercises scene. I thought it was well written. And I think the characterizations were, like, were just pretty spot on for, um, how Sophie and Fitz have just been, like, acting throughout this book. And I mean, I think Everblaze just has such beautiful characterization in this point of the series like there's not that weird like dex like there's no weirdness between dex and sophie quite yet bian is just there to be sophie's friend and they're learning how to be friends and they're learning how to be supportive and how to work together like fitz still just wants to support sophie and then keith also like he hasn't had his breakdown yet yeah so they're they're all like Nothing terrible has happened to them yet. Yeah. They're all still kids. 
yeah, I just, I, I liked the characterization in this section. I liked Fitz. I really liked Fitz. Yeah. And I think, I think we're starting to see some of that back. I think that it's really interesting to see how this series deals with anger, because we see it in so many different ways. Like, we see Sophie getting angry, we see Fitz getting angry, we see Grady getting angry. Like, it's just a very interesting emotion and very fun to play with in a series. I mean, I think... This isn't a huge part of the section, but just something that I like to bring up is that Mr. Forkle is shown as being very kind to Sophie at the beginning of this section. Yeah. And then he's genuinely nice to her and he just does it out of the kindness of his heart. He's like, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna help you out here. I'm gonna do something nice. Like, right? Like, it's cool. Just take a break. Take a breather. Don't worry. No sweat. So then we're going to move on to social media. So you can find me at um, Malamelting on Tumblr and Instagram. And I'm um, Everglen Havenfield or Everglen ha- Havenfield on Tumblr. And I'm also one of the mods for uh, KOTLC Pride Month, or Pride, it's just KOTLC Pride 2020 um, on Tumblr, where we're just reblogging different stuff about um, the Keepers and LGBTQ headcanons and art and the like during this Pride Month. Yeah, if you want to send a message to the podcast in general, we're at KeeperCast on Tumblr and the KeeperCast on Instagram. This has been KeeperCast. See you next week.